Good job. Let's get our Bibles out open to Philippians chapter 1. That's page 1349 on that pew Bible in front of you. Now let me just give you a little bit of quick history. So uh, after Hurricane Katrina, Samaritan's Purse came and uh, they sent their entire uh, Canadian delegation and set up camp here for months after Katrina and worked uh, out of this location all over our community, all over the coast. And through that partnership that we have uh, developed, uh, I have come to believe and be utterly convinced that there's no more effective organization on the planet as far as responding to the needs of the world globally. And so this year, um, you know, is think about it. Every day is an opportunity to share the gospel, but not every opportunity is equal. And so in a time where we're limited in our ability to travel, we're limited in our ability to do a lot of things, here's a way that we can spread the gospel around the world that we are not limited. And so I would just encourage you to, uh, after the service, come up here, get some boxes, take them home, involve, do this as a family. If you have small children, involve them in the process. You can follow the boxes online, and they can be involved in that whole uh, process. It's very exciting for them. It's a wonderful, teachable moment. But, you know, in a normal year, if you and your family do five boxes, then this would be a good year for you to maybe go the extra mile and do seven or ten or something like that. So it's not easy to do, but it's worth it. So I would just encourage you to uh, pray about how many boxes God would have you to do this year and be a part of what God's allowed us to be a part of. Amen? All right, let's pray, and then we'll study Philippians 1 together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this day that you've given us to wake up, to breathe your air, to be your sons and daughters. Lord, to come to this moment in our lives that is by your providence. It's not accidental. And we find ourselves here today with this text before us. And, Lord, we want to make the most of this time. We didn't come here to be entertained. We didn't come here to receive. We came here to give worship to you. And so, Lord, we're going to worship you now around your perfect and errant word. And I pray that you'll use your word to go deeply into our hearts and to show us things that you want us to know that we might be able to live for your honor and glory. Thank you for what you will do today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we are finishing up chapter 1 today in our study through the book of Philippians. And basically what Paul has done, the Apostle Paul up until this point, is writing this letter from prison. Uh, he's he's uh, a prisoner in Rome, and he's writing to Philippi, this church that he loves, these people that are part of this fellowship that he planted uh, he wasn't planning on going to the city of Philippi, but God directed him there. And through a sequence of supernatural events, some people, he shared the gospel, they got saved, a church was started, and this church has become this tremendous source of encouragement to the Apostle Paul as the gospel has really grown out of the city of Philippi. And so he's writing this letter back to them as they face trials and persecution and He's in the midst of his own trials and persecution. And what he's been telling them is his own story and illustrating to them 
that they can have transcendent joy. They can have a joy that transcends their circumstances and situations. And what God wants us to know is that we can have a joy that transcends our circumstances and situations. And when I say that, I know that it's very compelling or, or tempting for you to, to, to think, well, I mean, how can you have joy that surpasses all of your circumstances? I mean, come on. I mean, maybe you're here today and you're thinking, I've been going through some really difficult things. And, uh, you know, I just don't get that. Well, let me help you because you've experienced transcendent joy in little tiny drops along your journey. So have I. For example, I have a lot of difficult days. And you know what? There's some days that from the time I wake up in the morning, it's like I'm just battling all day long. And maybe, you know, I get up and things just aren't working out right and I get a flat tire on my way to work and, you know, I'm late for this appointment and things don't go the way I'm hoping that they're going to go and the whole day is just a catastrophe. You ever had one of those days? And then I get home and I walk in the door and Lisa says, well, honey, how was your day? And I don't hang my head and say, well, it was just horrible and everything went wrong. I look at her and I say, we're about to be grandparents. You know that? Like that little baby is about to be here. And I don't care how bad my day is, I'm about to get me a baby. And I am so excited that that little girl is, is just being woven together inside my baby's stomach. And I mean, I can't wait. And there's nothing going to ruin that feeling. You see, that's transcendent joy. See, you ladies in here, you know that week before you got married and, all the, and things were going wrong and there were challenges and all that, but you were like, but I'm, I'm fixing to get married. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm marrying the man of my dreams. Now, I understand things change over the years, but at that time, he was the man of your dreams, right? And, and so you had a little transcendent joy. Amen. See, what I'm saying is sometimes there's something that is so is just so joy-producing in your life that you can have the worst day ever, but hey, amen. I'm fixing to get a baby, and I'm super pumped about that. What Paul's saying is that you can have transcendent joy in God that will supersede all of your situations and circumstances such that you could be in jail chained up to a Roman soldier not knowing if you're ever going to get out or not and have transcendent joy. I think what Paul's message to us up until this point has been could be summarized this way. If you have your listening guide, until you find something worth dying for, you're really not living. You see, life is really lived when 
it's lived for something bigger, something more, you know, it's something more than just the mundane little things that are happening in and around us, but something bigger. Let's look at verse 27, the last part of Philippians chapter 1. Here's how Paul is going to usher us through this first chapter. He's going to say, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition or destruction, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Now, what is, what is God telling us here? He wants us to know. Paul wants the Philippians to know. God wants us to know this morning that the Lord is, is placing a call on every single one of our lives. That He's calling us to something and that whatever God's calling us to is going to take courage to accomplish. And that if, if, if you feel that God's calling you to something and it doesn't take courage, then I hate to tell you this, but you haven't found it yet, you need to keep searching. Because when God calls you to something, it takes courage. And this is why the Bible is always bringing this up. And this is what Paul is sort of trying to get up to the surface here, is that the calling of God is hard. He's not saying that it's easy. He's saying that it's hard, and that's why we need transcendent joy. That's why we need to have our lives built on the right foundation. Foundation. You see, maybe this morning, maybe God's calling you to adoption. That's going to take courage. Maybe God's calling you to be a foster parent. It's going to take courage. Maybe God's calling you to help children with their homework in an after-school program. It's going to take courage. Maybe God's calling you to work with a literary, uh, literacy ministry and, and teach someone how to read. It's going to take courage. Maybe God is calling you to jail ministry. It's going to take courage. Maybe God's calling you to care for your aging parents or care for your spouse who is suffering from dementia. It's going to take courage. It's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy. But God's calling all of us to something. See, God's calling you to something. And that's something, it, it, it may be centered around the journey to finding that, maybe centered around your giftedness. You may have a, a, a gift to do a 
particular thing. And, or maybe it's your proximity. Maybe you have access to a certain group of people or a place or something like that. And God's going to use that to accomplish what he's called you to. He's called you to something. Listen, he didn't save you for nothing. He saved every single one of us for something. And I can assure you, I can assure you, after almost three decades of walking with God, He hasn't called you to something easy. He's called you to something hard. As a church, He hasn't called us to something easy. He's called us to something hard. And in order to do that, we're going to have to be a certain kind of people. We need to understand what it's going to take for us to be the kind of people that as a, as a body of believers, we can accomplish the hard things that God's called us to. And then within that, that the individuals within that body will be able to be encouraged and spurred forward to accomplish the, the hard things that God's called them to. So what does that look like? Well, this is what Paul is relaying to the church of Philippi. Here's the first thing. Consistency. It's going to take consistency. You're not going to accomplish this hard task that God's placed before you if you're not consistent. We as a people will never accomplish what God's called us to without consistency. Notice how verse 27 begins. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, I want you to think about conduct with me for a second. You know what conduct is not? Conduct is not just a, a momentary thing. Conduct is ongoing, isn't it? We're going to have to be consistent over time. We're going to have to live lives of consistency. You see, your conduct can change from moment to moment. But what Paul's saying is that our conduct ought to consistently be that which is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, what makes that difficult to do? Well, the answer is hardship. You see, when things get a little wacky and out of balance and off-keel and aren't what we would consider normal, people start to panic. They start to waver. They start to succumb to the temptation to fear. And they do things they ought not do. It's a difficult time to be alive in a lot of ways. I think it's a wonderful time to be alive, but a lot of people think it's a difficult time. But you know what's surprising to me? is that those of you that are in the older generation, notice I didn't include myself in that. It seems to me like you ought to be the most secure. You see, because you know what all the young folks around here don't know? They don't know what life was like in the United States for example, in 1968. They don't know 
that in 1968, there was a lot of tension around the Vietnam War. And there was a lot of people that were protesting and doing a lot of really outlandish things because of that situation and their disagreement of it. And in the midst of that, in April of that year, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was gunned down in Memphis. And it was just sort of this, uh, you know, boiling point of racial tension. You see, what's going on today is not new. And you know what? Two months after Dr. King was gunned down, Robert Kennedy was shot to death in Los Angeles. And then, in August, what is still known today as the most contentious convention in our nation's history, the Democratic Convention of 1968, convened in Chicago, Illinois, and there was so much unrest in our country that the mayor of Chicago had the entire facility surrounded by barbed wire. See, some of you were alive and remember this. The National Guard had to come out and take charge of the situation to get the demonstrators under control. It was a horrible, horrible situation. And then as the summer wound down and the year was close to an end, and I'm sure everybody alive at that time was thinking, just like we're thinking, man, I'm going to be glad when this year's over. The Summer Olympics were in Mexico City. And just when they thought things were going to settle down, some African-American athletes, who were just so frustrated with the racial injustice of their country, stood on the platform and tried to bring awareness to their situation. And here we went again, spiraling out of control. So is this unique? Well, in some ways, but is it unique in other ways? No. But you know what's evident to me? What's evident to me is the same thing that should have been evident to every spirit-filled follower of Jesus in 1968. Same thing's true today. The problem with America is not that we lack intelligence. It's not that we, we lack talent. The problem with America is that we lack God. That's the problem. But let me tell you something, no matter how dark these days seem to be, and no matter how long these days linger, Jesus is not intimidated. He wasn't intimidated in 1968, and he's not intimidated in 2020, and he will never be intimidated. This hasn't thrown heaven into a tizzy. Ask yourself this question. When you look around the world today, why is everybody so angry? Why are they so angry? What are they angry? Why is anger the prevailing emotion in our country? 
Some of you, angry. You know why that is? Is because your anger is only evidence of your realization, whether conscious or subconscious, that your predicament is very precarious. Meaning, you're standing on shifting sand. That's why you're angry. Because if you weren't vulnerable, if, if your safety and satisfaction weren't fleeting, if you didn't know that, you wouldn't be angry. Let me illustrate. Let's suppose. Let's suppose that you were standing upon a rock. And the rock on which you stood, you were 100% convinced and assured that that rock would not fail you and would support you no matter what may come, okay? Now, if you're standing upon that rock, which has been tried and tested, and you're 100% confident in, and people start coming up to you and saying to you, hey, you shouldn't stand on that rock. I've got a different rock. I've got a better rock. I've got a new rock. I've got a... You wouldn't get mad. You wouldn't take offense to that. You would simply say, well, I'm, I'm sorry to disagree with you. I hate that you are deceived into believing that whatever it is that you're trying to convince me of is better than this, but this is tried and true. I don't have to worry about this. I'm totally secure on this rock. So I hope that you would join me on this rock. But if you don't, that's going to be to your demise. You see, you wouldn't get mad if you knew that your rock wouldn't fail. The only time people get mad is when they're unstable. Own it. It's the truth. You know it's true. You got a foundation problem. People standing on a rock with total confidence in that rock, why would they get mad? Now, if they weren't sure if that rock was going to save them, if they weren't certain that that rock was trustworthy, and they were trying to figure out, well, which rock do I need to get on? Then you got a whole different situation on your hands, don't you? You see, the Bible's telling us shaky people can't bear witness to an unshakable God. You know that? It doesn't work like that. You can't do that. And no matter how true what you're saying is, if you're shaky, you have no credibility. You see, the only people that any sane person is going to listen to about a safe foundation is a person that's utterly confident in the foundation that they're standing on. You see, the minute a person gets angry, I'm done listening. 
Because you don't have any confidence in that which you stand. Why would you be angry? You see, if there's nothing, if there's absolutely nothing that could knock me off of my rock, you're free to believe whatever you want to believe. It's not going to change what I'm standing on. You see, to accomplish God's mission, we've got to have consistency. Secondly, Paul wants us to know we've got to have cooperation. Now, look at what the Scripture says. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, that I would hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one, <clears throat> excuse me, in one spirit and one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So their cooperation is a great encouragement to Paul. And then in verse 28, he even talks about how you're not to be terrified of your adversaries. And so there's this issue that comes up of cooperation. Well, I wonder why in verse 27 it starts by saying only. Why only? Why doesn't it just say, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ? You see, what Paul's saying is that when it's all said and done, when you get to the end of your life, the only thing that's really going to matter are the things that you did worthy of the gospel of Christ. You see, all these other things aren't going to matter. So what you ought to do is devote yourself only to what's ultimately going to matter. You see, Francis Schaeffer had this famous saying that the early Christians were not persecuted because they worshipped Jesus. They were persecuted because they worshipped Jesus only. You see, that's what brought the persecution upon them. It's the same thing today. See, nobody cares if, if you say you're a Christian or if you go to church, you believe in God. Nobody cares about that. But like we talked about in the last couple of weeks, if you become a fanatic about Jesus now, people are going to have a problem with that. That's going to, that's going to bring some, some difficulty your way. It's not going to make your life easier. It's going to make your life more difficult, which is why so many people choose to just try to live a lukewarm life. The only way to do that would be to not read your Bible. Because if you did, you'd know that the Lord says he's going to spit the lukewarm out of his mouth. It's not going to be good. See, Philippi, this is what cooperation is about. That The context of this text is the, the city of Philippi. Now, Philippi, I've told you about how Philippi was like a miniature Rome. It's 800 miles from Rome, yet it was designed to mimic Rome. What they wanted is everyone that came to Philippi to experience a taste of Rome. And the people that lived in Philippi were very proud of the fact that they were Philippian for good reason. Number one, because they had won a lot of significant battles which had caused Rome to show them great favor. Now get this, some of you won't remember anything else, but this will resonate with you. If you were Philippian because of the way Rome viewed Philippi, 
You never, ever, ever, imagine this, had to pay taxes. What in the world would that be like? Man, amen, who wouldn't be patriotic about that land? No taxes because they're Philippian. So there was a lot of prestige that went along with that. And so when you think about it, Philippi was a, was a colony of Rome in Macedonia. To visit Philippi was to experience Rome. Okay. Through our cooperation, we are a colony of heaven on earth. To visit us ought to be to experience a taste of heaven. That's what it's supposed to be. That's what believers united together, as Paul's talking about, ought to be. See, we're ambassadors of an eternal kingdom. So together as a people, we cooperate, and our united goal is to put our king on display, to show the world how glorious and great he is, to say, hey, this rock right here that I'm standing on, it'll never fail you. That's why I'm different from you. That's why I don't get all wound up and bent out of shape about stuff, because I'm standing on a rock that won't move. And you know what happens? People start paying attention to that. They start thinking, wait a minute, because they know that their foundation is not, it's not stable. It's not trustworthy because they're all over the map. You see, as we cooperate together, we ought to be asking this question. How can we help Gulfport experience a glimpse of heaven on earth? You see, because eventually, I don't know when it's going to be, but eventually travel is going to come back online. And when it does, that question is going to change. Because it's not just going to be Gulfport. It's going to be to the ends of the earth. And Tony's getting on a plane going to the ends of the earth. I guarantee you that's fixing to happen. But until it does, how do we help people experience heaven? How do we, what does that look like? Well, I can tell you how not to do it. How not to do it is to act like you got it all together. It's to act like you're just fine and everything's okay. Act like, well, you don't, you don't have any problems. You don't have any struggles. And as long as, you know, hey, I got money in the bank, I got plenty of comfort, that everything's going to be okay. That's not the picture God wants us to show the world. See, the world already has that picture. It's called keeping up with the Kardashians. You know what the picture is? As long as you got enough money, that's heaven on earth. That's not heaven on earth. That is not heaven on earth. See, God is calling us to show a different picture to the world. A picture that's, that says, hey, you know what? We're broken people. We're broken. Man, we're, we're real people with real struggles, and we face real challenges every day. But you know what? We do it together, and we do it in confidence and joy. That's the picture that's compelling to the world, that's believable. See, when that happens, because it happens here. And when it does, this is what happens. Ordinary people like me and you 
invite people to come. And they experience what we experience. And we say, is this something that you'd like to be a part of? Is this something that you're interested in? And if it's yes, great. And if it's no, I'm sorry. See, some people, not everybody's going to stand on your rock. Not everybody is going to get on a solid foundation. But nobody is going to be compelled by you to get on a solid foundation if you're not convinced and assured 100% and surrounded by people who are. You see, we're only going to stand out when we stand together. That's the only time. I mean, it's just the way it is. That's the way God designed it. He put us in community because in order to accomplish the hard things that he's called us to, we're going to need each other. We're not going to make it on our own. It's not going to work that way. It never has and it never will. That's not his will and his purpose. And so he's put us together to accomplish the things that he's called us to. So we're going to need to be consistent. We're going to need to cooperate. Number three, we're going to have to have confidence. I've already been talking about the fact that without confidence, the whole thing is going to crumble. You see, he says that I might hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit. Notice this, this join together. To stand fast is to link together against opposition. And then he says in verse 28, and not in any way. Isn't that interesting? You're going to have adversaries, but not in any way terrified by your adversaries. Isn't Paul using interesting wording? In other words, he's not just saying that you're going to have adversaries, but he's also indicating that these adversaries are going to be terrifying, but that you shouldn't be terrified. He didn't say don't be terrified because they're not terrified. He's saying don't be terrified because of the rock that you stand on. They may be scary. But they're not scary enough to knock you off of your foundation. And notice what he says, which is to them. See, when you do this, when you stand in courage, in, in doing hard things and suffering through hard things, the result is, is that your enemies, it's to their destruction. So here's what Paul's saying. As God's people... We never give in, but we never lash out. You see? We take a different posture. See, sometimes, I mean, I'm honest with you. I want you to know that I don't always have it all together. Sometimes, sometimes I feel weak. Sometimes I feel worn down. Sometimes I get discouraged. And you encourage me. Do you know what encourages me is, is the way God works in your lives. The, when, when I 
hear about and involved in and find out about the things that you're doing and the things, the way God's using you, it greatly encourages me. You see, this church is as much for me as it is for you. That I, I need other people around me. I'm encouraged by you. This isn't just a one-way transaction. It's two-way. And we all need that. And you see, what happens when we stand united in the face of adversity? I mean, look, because you ask yourself, I mean, who does this? Well, just think for a second about what has history taught us? You see, when Paul says that's to their destruction, well, yes, you should just believe that because the Bible says it, but more than that, or at least equal with that, is look at history. In other words, the great superpower, the Roman Empire, how are they doing today? You seen them on the news lately? You heard anything about what's going on in the Roman Empire? No, because guess what? They gone. You see that big, unbelievable, world-dominating authority crucified a little unknown Jewish man. And what happened? They're wiped off the face of the earth, and that Jewish man that they hung on a cross is still dictating the course of all of humanity and all of history around the world. You see? In other words, what happens to the enemies of God or the enemies of the gospel? They lose. It's always been that way. Recently, I've been fascinated by what's going on in Thailand. Maybe some of you have seen the gospels exploding in Thailand. And yet here we have a nation whose government is devoted to thwarting and stopping the gospel. And yet it is exploding there like unlike anywhere else on the face of the earth. I was watching a video the other day of 1,400 new believers being baptized in a giant baptism ceremony. It was just, I mean, tears running down my face. I'm just blown away. But is that new? I mean, in 1949, when the communist country, uh, uh, powers took over China, Oh, it was the end of the world. Now China's a communist nation, and there's only a, uh, there was estimated to be maybe a million Christians in the entire nation of China. And since the late 40s, Christianity has been outlawed, and Christians have been greatly persecuted in the country of China. And what has happened? Today, there's over 100 million believers strong in China. I mean, if you want to go against God, go ahead. But I'm just here to tell you, you're going to lose. You got no shot. The enemies of God lose every single time. You ought to have great confidence in that. That ought to make you feel really good. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 2, the world is passing away with all of its lusts. But. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now think about that for a second. You see, the world's passing away, drowning in all of its lusts. But the people of God, 
The people who follow Jesus, they abide forever. Forever. You see, listen, persecution is horrible. I don't want persecution. You don't want persecution. Nobody wants persecution because it's bad. But let me tell you something. What if we read the Bible and believed the Bible for what it says? Then we would know that if you persecute one of God's children, you're persecuting him. Remember in Acts chapter 9? Remember when Paul, the apostle, met Jesus on the road to Damascus? What did Jesus say to Paul? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why is that important? Oh, it's important. So that means if the world persecutes you, they're persecuting Jesus. Well, guess what? If you persecute Jesus, you lose 100% of the time. You see, he's 40 bazillion and O. He's never lost, ever. And he's never going to lose. And so if you're getting persecuted for Christ's sake, bring it on. Because it's not you they're persecuting. They're persecuting the one who lives in you and they will never defeat him. They might get you. They might wear you down, but they'll never defeat him. And so if he's in you, you're going to abide forever. You see, you cannot stick up for Jesus and end up losing. It's impossible. You understand that? That is impossible according to the Bible. Yet, Miraculously, untold droves of people within the so-called church of Jesus Christ have believed otherwise. Not because they say they have, but because their actions prove it, they keep their mouth shut. They're not, they're not inviting anybody to come stand on their rock. They're not inviting anybody onto a firm foundation. So something is drastically wrong. Somebody must have deceived people who know about the rock, who trust the rock, who have stood upon the rock, and yet are fearful that they might lose. Hmm. I think it's a glorious time to be alive. You see, when we take courage, our courage is a prophetic warning to the world that Jesus will prevail. You understand that? When you stand on your rock in utter confidence of your foundation that you have under your feet, that you don't have to re react and get wound up in all the nonsense and craziness around you, it's a prophetic declaration. 
Jesus prevails. He will prevail. Come hell or high water. Come earthquake, forest fire, nuclear war. It doesn't matter. Trust me. The rock I'm standing on ain't going nowhere. Nowhere. So why am I going to get all wound up? As if somebody is going to jerk this rock out from under me. That's never going to happen. I have confidence in that. One final thing. Calling. You see, I can... I can talk to you about being courageous and about being consistent and about cooperating. I can talk to you about all of these things, but there's still going to be those of you in the room that are going to you're, you're going to have a spirit of timidity. You're going you're to push back and you're going to say, I, I, don't, I don't, I mean, I mean, I want that, but how do I get that? Look at how Paul ends. Look at verse 29 and following. He says, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now, the word granted, is the same root word that we get our word grace from. So what Paul is saying is that for it has been graced upon you, it has been gifted to you. What this text is saying is that Paul has given us two, or God has given us two very tangible, wonderful gifts. One is faith in him. That's a gift from God. Not of works, lest any man can boast. And the other gift is to suffer for him. You see, the first gift is a gift that people are very excited initially about receiving, but then over time start to overlook and take for granted. But the second gift is very different. The second gift nobody's excited about. In fact, nobody even wants the gift at all. They'll say, you know what? That's great. Just give it to somebody else. Don't give it to me. Don't give it to anybody in my family. Just give it to somebody else. Because I don't want it. Now, the key to understanding this is what Paul says at the end of verse 29, he says, for his sake. Now, that's the second time in this text he said, for his sake. Suffering for his sake. I, I want to talk to you for a moment about this gift. I want to try to change your thinking and your understanding with regards to this gift. I think if you'll open your heart, God will show you something this morning about this gift that you've never seen before. You see, when courage bursts forth in our life in the midst of suffering, 
when we're consistent and courageous, it's because we have come to the realization that we're, we're part of a, a bigger story, that, that our lives matter, that we, we have purpose and meaning, that, 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 that this is all for something. You see, that, that God has taken our, our broken lives with all of our failures and all of our regrets and all of our shame and all of our hurts, and he's lifted us up for his glorious purposes. And so that even someone like me and even someone like you can, can be used by God to do something of great importance and value. You see, what, what Paul, what God is communicating in these last two verses of chapter 1 is this. You matter. See, some of you this morning, you just need to know that you matter. You, re- you really do matter. Now, I know that for a long time, you, you may have been told otherwise. But you matter And you matter for his purpose. And you've got to stop believing that you don't matter because it is absolutely killing you. Do you know why the devil puts that thought continuously in your mind that you don't matter? God can't use you. You don't matter. You know why he does that? Because he fears you. He fears you because of who lives within you. And so the only thing he can do, if he can convince you that you don't matter, then he can relegate you to a life of barrenness and unfruitfulness. You see, God has called you into his family if you're his child. He's adopted you as his son or his daughter. And he's called you to be part of his mission. See, that's part of the adopting process. That's part of the, there, you, 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 there's no, there, it's impossible to be saved and not called. Just read Romans chapter 8. It's impossible. So every saved person is called. And every called person is saved. And that's how that goes. And so you've been called and you've been adopted and you are now in his family as his child, and you know what he's done? He's given you a sword to fight with because it's going to be difficult. It's not going to be easy. You're going to have a lot of tough times. Some of you are in the midst of really tough times. Do you know what that sword is? Suffering. God put that sword in your hand. And do you know what, when you, how do you use the sword of suffering? You see, when you, when you suffer worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, every day that you do that, you slit the throat of Satan. Every day. Every day that you stand on that rock and let the chaos go on around you 
and you are firmly implanted and confident in who you are in Christ. And in the midst of your suffering, you're still able to find joy. The world doesn't know what to do with that. That is an incredibly gracious gift and an incredibly powerful weapon. Suffering. You see, it sounds so, you know, like, come on, Tony. Really? You know what I've been going through? You know what I've been dealing with? You know what I've been diagnosed with? You know the kind of chronic pain I have to deal with? Do you know the hurt and the pain and the abandonment I've faced? Do you know the suffering and the, oh, whatever it is that's going through your mind? Okay, all right. I've been telling you the whole time, it is bad. I'm not saying it's not bad. But I'm saying let's take all of that and let's put it up against who it is that I'm asking you to suffer for. See, I'm not asking you to suffer for me. I'm not asking you to suffer for who's next to you. I'm not asking you to suffer for anybody except one person. Consider who it is that we're suffering for. The Son of God. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The line of the tribe of Judah. The resurrection and the life. The Alpha, the Omega. The only begotten of the Father. The Word, the way, the door, the vine, the bread, the light, the servant, the shepherd, the bridegroom, the man of sorrows, the Messiah, the risen one, God with us. In other words, consider who it is that's calling you to do this. It's not just anybody. Make sure that you have the right frame of reference around what's going on. How in the world? You should wake up every day. This is what I wake up every day and go, how in the world did Tony Carnes get called into this story? What in the world? How crazy is that? That you, you, you who doesn't think you matter, you who's been, been told that you're useless or worthless or unable or ill-equipped or whatever the case may be. You, that God, you matter so much that God chose you and called you into his purposes. He invited you into faith. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have faith if it wasn't for him. And then he granted you this gift. This sword that will declare his glory to the people and world around you in ways like nothing else can. Nothing else. See, some of you are great at encouraging people. We need you to get in the game and start encouraging people. Some of you are great leaders. We need you to step up and start leading. Some of you are great teachers. You know what? You need to start teaching our children. 
See, all of you are gifted. And God has called us to use our giftedness. But it's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. And if you're already suffering, it's probably going to compound your suffering. And you're going to have to sacrifice things. And that's good because of who you're giving it up for. Because remember, at the end of the day, no matter how hard it is, no matter how tired you are or worn down or, or bleak it may seem, you're standing on the rock and it will never fail. And so the world might go crazy. But amen, your rock's going to endure. You're going to make it. You're going to abide forever. And nothing can ever change that. Now listen. One last thing. Because I know this is a challenge. See, some of you, you're going to have to step out alone. See, some of you are listening to me and you're like, I, I want that. Pastor, I want that. I, I want to I wanna be that person. I, I want to be courageous. I want to step out. I want to be the light in the darkness. I want God to use me. But, but every time it comes down to it, you, you cower down. And here's why. Because you're going to have to do it alone initially. You see, David was the one who was always told that he didn't matter. Even his own family said, you don't matter. And see, when he came up and Goliath was mocking God's name and God's people, and nobody would do anything. David had to fight Goliath alone. Alone. Now he could have just walked away and said, I could never do that. Or, but he didn't. He fought him alone. And when he fought and defeated Goliath alone, there were a lot of people watching. But there were two people watching in particular. One named Saul, who became David's biggest enemy who devoted his life to destroying David and was David's adversary, indicating to us that whenever we step out and do something hard for God, we're going to be faced with adversity and there's going to be those who try to stop us. But there was someone else watching that day when David defeated Goliath. And his name was Jonathan. And when Jonathan saw David step out in faith and fight Goliath, something resonated in Jonathan's heart. Because just a few chapters earlier, God's people got in a skirmish with a Philistine garrison and no one would fight the Philistines and Jonathan fought them alone. And so when he saw David fighting alone, his heart connected to David's heart. And a beautiful partnership was birthed in that moment between David and Jonathan. Maybe you came to church alone. You're going to have to go it alone for a while. You're going to have to get involved in a community group alone. And it's going to be awkward and it's going to be hard. But if you stay the course, 
If you stay focused, I promise you that God will bring people that are walking the same journey you are into your life. But if you wait for them to come before you step out, it will never happen. you got to step out alone. And it's hard and it's scary. But it's worth it. It's worth it. So yes, this is a team sport. Yes, we're all in this together. But you know what? When God called me, you weren't there. You weren't crying with me. You weren't scared to death with me. You didn't think you were losing your mind with me. You weren't the one whose stomach was filled with ulcers. It was me. Because it wasn't our calling, it was my calling. And it was really scary. And it was really hard. You got to step out. It's going to be hard. It's going to be scary. But what happens when you have people joined together who understand this concept? Something incredibly powerful happens. Our best argument for the gospel is not a concept, but a community. See, we're a community of people that stepped out alone into embracing a seemingly impossible calling. But we're so confident in the rock on which we stand that we're not going to get caught up in all the chaos going around us But we're going to be committed to the mission of getting as many people on that rock as possible. That's living your life only in conduct worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's stand and bow our heads. Lord.